Our lesson tonight is our second and will be the second and final lesson of Nahum before we move on to our next uh, book concerning the prophets. Uh, last time we looked at uh, chapter 1 in our first lesson, and in our second lesson we're going to combine looking at chapters 2 and 3 together. This evening I want to show how sin brings punishment and downfall for the wicked. As we have seen, as you've heard me mention many times before, throughout the prophets the theme is much of the same. Rebellion, punishment, uh, rebellion warning, and then also uh, further rebellion, and finally punishment from God if repentance does not take place. And Nahum, it's, it's the same uh, situation just as we saw it back in Micah as well. You may have heard the phrase before, crime and punishment. Well, did we, well there's another saying to that, that punishment must fit the crime. The crime for those living during Nahum's time was their rebellion against God, and punishment was going to come. In relation, in relation to sin, if you think about that phrase, crime and punishment, in relation to sin, it is no different. Sin is the crime, and yes, punishment is going to take place. We begin first tonight by looking at Nineveh's destruction in chapter 2. And these 13 verses will notice what's going to happen to Nineveh as a result of their rebellion to God. In Nahum chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, after going through verse 4, we find her preparations are described, but it's really to no avail. She prepares for, for these, what we might consider a battle, because we know many times God would use other nations to bring judgment upon the wicked. We look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. The Bible says here, He who scatters has come up before your face. Man the fort, watch the road, strengthen your flanks, fortify your mighty. For the Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob like the excellence of Israel. For the, for, for the emptiers have emptied them out and, and, and ruined their vine branches. The shields of his mighty men are made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariots come with flaming torches in the day of his preparation. The spears are, are brandished. The chariots rage in the streets. They jostle one another in the broad roads. They seem like torches. They run like lightning. Here the idea being described of the number of them and the speed of them and, and even the power of them. But as we're going to see in verses 5 through 7, uh, their efforts are worthless. Their preparations are described here in verses 1 through 4. But their efforts are going to come to mean nothing. We look at verses 5 through 7. The Bible says here, Though Nineveh... Well, that's not in the right section there, so good thing I have my Bible here with me open. Nineveh 2, verses 5 through 7. He remembers his nobles. They stumble in their, in their walk. They make haste to her walls, and, and the defense is prepared. The gates of the rivers are opened, and the palace is dissolved. It is decreed she shall be led away captive, and, shall be, and she shall be brought up, and her maidservants shall lead her as with the voice of doves beating their breasts. There, verses 5 through 7. Again, their efforts are worthless, and, and as we find there in verses 5 through 7 in Nahum chapter 2. And so we find her preparations described in the first four verses, and we see their efforts come to nothing in verses 5 through 7. Well, notice in verses 8 and following how the citizens began to flee the city as the city is looted, as we would say today. Looking at verses 8 through 10 of Nahum chapter 2, So Nineveh of old was like a pool of water, now they flee away. 
Halt, halt, they cry, but no one turns back. Take spoil of silver, take spoil of gold. There is no end of treasure or wealth of every desirable prize. She is empty, desolate, and waste. The heart melts and the knees shake. Much pain is in every side, and all their faces are drained of color. Sometimes when someone sees something that is utterly terrifying, we say, you know, they're... Their face was, you know, was like it was like a sheet. They become just white, and that's the idea we find there in verse in verse eight. And he says the heart melts and the knees shake, depicting no doubt fear, and just not just the idea of being overwhelmed, being included in that as well. He says much pain is in every side, and all their faces are drained of color because destruction is coming upon them, becoming upon Nineveh again because of their wickedness. We find in verses 11 through 13 that her time of wickedness has come to an end, and with, it comes to an end with destruction. Looking at verses 11 through 13 of Nahum chapter 2, where is the dwelling of the lions in the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion walked, the lioness and the lion's cub, and no one made them afraid. The lion tore in pieces enough for his cubs, killed for his lionesses, filled his caves with prey and his dens with flesh, looking now at verse 13. Behold, I am against you, said the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall be heard no more. So you have here, looking back up just a moment, verses 11 and 12, you have here this picture of power, talking about the lion, and the lion's cub, and the lionesses, how they were able to be in great power, have great influence, had whatever they had, whatever they wanted there in verse 12. The lion tore in pieces enough for his cubs, meaning the leaders had enough for the children. You might say enough to spare. Killed for his lionesses, a reference to multiple wives. You might even say uh, lovers as well there in verse 12. Filled his caves with prey and his dens with flesh. But as we see in verse 13, it all comes to an end. Look at verse 13 again. Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts, and that is enough to make everything change. The Lord is against them. He says in verse 13, I will burn your chariots in smoke. You remember verses 1 through 4? They're referring to them as lightning, how fast and how powerful they were, and how the mighty men had the chariots. We'll be at the end of the section here in verse 13. The Lord says, I will burn your chariots in smoke. They also mention in verses 1 through 4, those of the sword, how mighty they were. And yet we find in verse 13, it says, And the sword shall devour your young lions. means all your young soldiers and all your young men are going to be killed because God's bringing wrath upon them because of their sin. He says, I will cut off your prey from the earth. means their supply of food is going to come to an end. He says, and the voice of your messengers shall be heard no more. A picture of destruction, a picture of, of everything being cut off from them, no hope, no help, and God was against them there in verse 13. So we find Nineveh's destruction described. We find their fruitless attempts to prepare themselves in verses 1 through 7. We find how when destruction came upon them, verses 8 through 10, the people abandoned the, abandoned the city and even looted and robbed the city, verses 8 through 10. And we find lastly, verses 11 through 13, the Lord was against them. Their chariots are going to go up in smoke. Those of the sword shall die. Their prey, their source of food, is going to be gone. And even the voice, he says, of their messengers shall be heard no more. 
And in chapter 3, it's interesting kind of how this is laid out because we talked about chapter 1 last week about some of the things that people had done, how wicked they were, and how the Lord was slow to anger, yet He was going to bring vengeance upon them in chapter 1. Chapter 2, as we've just seen, we saw that the Lord's bringing destruction upon them despite their efforts to, you might say, to fight back in some way. But then in chapter 3, we get, are given a reminder of why these things were happening in the first place. There was always a reason behind God's punishment, the reason for the city's doom, as we find in chapter 3. The Lord doesn't just destroy people for fun. He punishes them because of their rebellion and their refusal to come back to Him or to come to Him in general. Looking at chapter 3 of Nahum, we begin in verses 1 through 7 looking at the retribution for their crimes. Remember we said early on, we talked about the idea of crime and punishment. Well, punishment is what's going to be discussed here. The reasons for their punishment is what's going to be discussed here in chapter 3. Looking at verses 1 through 4, we find her mourning is due to her own sins in verses 1 through 4. He says, Woe to the bloody city. Why is it bloody? Because of destruction has taken place. Partly because of the evil they have done, because they were evil people. They killed a lot of innocent people, did a lot of horrible things. We also know, though, it is bloody because God was bringing His wrath upon them. He goes on to say here in verse 1, he says, It is all full of lies and robbery. Its victim never departs, which means their victim dies. He says, The noise of a whip and the noise of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of clattering chariots, horsemen charged with bright sword and glittering spear. There is a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpses there in verse 3, he says. He goes on to say in verse 4, Because of the multitude of the harlotries of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. And so we find in verses 1 through 3, woe being, this woe being proclaimed this bloody city, the condition that they are currently in in verses 2 and 3. And then in verse 4, a quick reminder why all these things are taking place. He says in verse 4, because of the multitude of their harlotries. We would say today because with their multitude of ways which they've been unfaithful to God. We know what a harlot is. You can't be a, with a harlot and then we claim to be faithful. And so they are unfaithful people in verse 4. They have been seduced by the harlot, which would include all types of ways which they can be seduced. False teachers, false uh, leaders, poor leaders, false prophets, sorceries, as we find here in verse 4 as well. The mistress of sorceries that he mentions here, who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. Her mourning is due, as we find here in verses 1 through 4, her mourning is due to her very own sins. Her sins are listed and, and given in, in a broad way here in verse 4 of being unfaithful to God. Families are being spoken of being led astray through her. Nations are being spoken of being led astray through her. And multitudes are being spoken of as being unfaithful to God. That's why punishment has come upon them. We next find in Nahum chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, how the Lord will make an example of Nineveh. In verses 5 through 7, 
He says, Behold, I am against you, said the Lord of hosts. He says, I'll lift your skirts over your face. The other being that he's going to expose all of their sin, all of their wickedness. There will be no hiding it. It's an interesting way to describe that, but that's what he's talking about. They're going to be just exposed wide open. I will show the nations your nakedness, there in verse, verse 5, and the kingdoms your shame. These are all reference to sin. Over your face, exposing your nakedness, the kingdoms your shame, all reference to their sin. <coughs> it's going to be shown to everyone. He says, I will cast abominable filth upon you, make you vile, make you vile and make you a spectacle. What did he just say in verse 6? He's going to make them an example. He's going to make an example out of them. We hear people say sometimes they're going to make an example of that person because of what they did. Well, in verse 6, that's what the Lord is doing. He says, I'll make you a spectacle. But again, the idea is he'll make them an example. And so come to pass, he says, that all who look upon you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? I mean, who's going to weep over Nineveh after all the things they have done? Again, remember, verse 5, all her sins are going to be exposed. Everyone's going to see what they have done, all the wickedness they have done, the murders, their unfaithfulness, all those wicked things they have done. They all have seen it there in verse 5. And in verse 6, the Lord says He's going to make a spectacle of them. He will cast a bumble filth upon them. He will make them vile. Well, in all reality, they are vile already, right? But he's going to let others see how bad they really are. Then he says in verse 7, So it come to pass that all who look upon you will flee from you. Think about how bad you have to be for wicked nations, worldly nations, to say, you know what, that's too much. <laughs> We're going to get away from you. That's the idea we find in verse 7. He says, Nineveh, he says here in verse 7, It was to come to pass that all who look, at, look upon you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? Who will, who will weep over her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Well, there will be none, because they are wicked people. We also find in the next section, verses 8, 8 through 11, the same fate as other wicked people is what they're going to face. The same fate as other wicked people. Looking at verse 8, we find that Nineveh is spoken of as being no better than the ancient capital of Egypt. Looking at verse 8, and are you better than, than Noaman that was situated by the river, that had the waters around her, whose rampart was the sea, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall was the sea? Is there, are you better than these wicked people? He's using Noaman no there in verse 8, know how wicked they were and how they were punished. And he says, are you any better than they? Well, no. They're not. Despite her, uh, despite her might, as we look at verses 9 and 10, she is carried away into captivity. Looking at verses 9 and 10, Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength, and it was boundless. Uh, Put and, and Lubin were, were, were your helpers, yet she was carried away. Think about that. Yet she was carried away. She had great helpers. They were mighty. Their strength was boundless there in verse 9. Yet she was carried away into captivity. What does that mean? Their physical strength could not prevent God from punishing them. Yes, she was carried away. She went to captivity. Her young children also were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. 
They cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound in chains. They could not escape punishment, well, neither will Nineveh. As we find in verse 11 here in just a moment, he talks about here how these people are being dashed in the streets, and even her, the children and the, and the honorable people are not, not able to be found, those types of things. They're bound in chains. You have an image here of a completely de- deprived group of people. So bad you want no one left to pass on any evil influence there in verses 9 and 10. Looking at verse 11, he says, You also, speaking now of Nineveh, you also will be drunk, you will be hidden, you also will seek refuge from the enemy. You will try to run and hide, is what he's saying in verse 11. But their end will be the same as that city we read about there in verse 8. We find in verses 12 and following that Nineveh, again, is unable to save itself. This is a common theme in the book of Naaman here, that Nineveh tries to save itself. How does mankind today, when in sin, how do we save ourselves? We do that through repentance, right? We come to God in repentance. If we're not a Christian, we come to Him by obeying the gospel. If we are a Christian, we have sinned in some way, we come, we confess those sins to God. Nineveh was not doing that. They felt they were strong enough physically they could overcome whatever enemies God brought upon them. Well, they were wrong. Looking at verses 12 and 13, he says, All your strongholds are fig trees with ripened figs. If they are shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. He's saying your strongholds are like a little tree you just shake and everything falls off. He says that's how weak they are. Now, to men, the strongholds might look incredible, but to God, he says, just give it a little shake, it'll just all fall apart. That shows you God's strength and man's weakness. All your strongholds, he says, points that you could fight back and keep the, the idea of keeping the enemy keep from going any further, he says, are like fig trees, the ripened figs. If they are shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater, that is, the mouth of the enemy. Surely your people in your, in your midst are women. The gates of your land are wide open for your enemies. Fire shall devour the bars of your gates. There in verses 12 and 13. Her strong points, her soldiers, all their help is going to fail. He says the gates are laid wide open for your enemies. It wasn't literally they're wide open. But it's as if they were because God was against them. Right? We've already seen that twice already. The Lord has said, Behold, I am against you, right? So the gates might as well be wide open. The fire will devour the bars of your gates, which means they're going to burn down, and your gates are going to be wide open, and there'll be nothing you can do. Your strongholds are going to be like the fig trees. Just give them a little shake, and it's all gone. You cannot save yourself from God's wrath. We continue reading here, looking at verses 14 through 17. We find that all her planning and all her efforts will be to no advantage and will be utterly useless. Looking at verse 14 and following. Draw your water for the siege. Fortify your strongholds. Why do you need water here in the middle of a siege? Because that's how you put out fires, right? When he says to your water, he says, you draw your water, fortify your strongholds, bring all the water, all these things, because what? It's not going to matter. The fires will be so many you can't put them out. The walls, all the walls will be crumbling. You can't rebuild them fast enough. He mentions there, and go, go into the clay and tread the mortar. Make strong the brick kiln. There the fire, fire will devour you. The sword will cut you off. 
It'll eat you up like locusts. Make, your, make yourself many like the locusts. Make yourself many like the swarming locusts. He goes on to say here in verse 16, You have multiplied your merchants more than the stars of heaven. The locust plunders and flies away. He, he talks about how they are many, yet they're still going to be destroyed. He says, Your commanders are like swarming locusts, and your generals like great grasshoppers, which camp in the hedges on a cold day. When the sun rises, they flee away. And the place where, where they are is not known. It means he's talking about how when the sun comes up and the battle begins, they're all just going to run away. Why do people run away in battle? There's a lot of reasons, and one of them is because they feel they cannot win. And we find there in verse 17, that's the idea that's given to us. There's a lot of part of verse 17 when he says, When the sun rises, they flee away. And they see the battle, and they see what they're up against. I don't want anything to do with that. And so they run away. He says, In a place where they are, it's not known, and they can't, can't find them. They just run off. In verses 18 and 19, we see that her time is up. We see the people scattered as the leaders come to an end in verses 18 and 19. He says, Your shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Your nobles rest in the dust. Your people are scattered on the mountains, and no one gathers them. Your injury has, has no healing. Your, your wound is severe. All their leaders are coming to an end. The latter part of verse 19, All who hear news of you will clap their hands over you, for upon, for upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually. That either being who has not been touched by your wickedness, well, all those around them have been touched, right? It's a rhetorical question. Their wickedness, their sin, for so long has affected so many. This thus we find in verse 19, he says, All who hear news of, your, of you will clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually? I mean, there are only those who are actually going to rejoice because of their downfall, because of their wickedness, because they too have been touched by their wickedness, as he mentions there in verse 19. Some lessons for us today. A very simple one that we are all well aware of, I'm sure. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6 and verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you think about Nineveh, what were they doing? They were paying the wages of sin. They weren't willing to come back to God. They were rebelling against God. God gave them time. As we saw back in chapter 1, they were warned. And what happened? They were punished by God. All their strong people are going to fall, are going to fall apart. All their leaders are going to run away. He said all their strongholds are going to just crumble. And the gates are going to be like they're just wide open. Because they will not come back to God in repentance. Sin has always had a cost from Eden to the end of time. And in the time of Nahum, it was no different. Looking at Proverbs 10 and verse 16, The labor of the righteous leads to life the wages of the wicked to sin. What was Nineveh doing? The wages of sin. The wages of sin. The labor of the righteous leads to life. The wages of the wicked to sin. Proverbs 10, verse 16. The second thing for us to think about is, as we have seen many times before, there is no escape from punishment. You know, that is a common theme we, see, we have seen throughout the prophets. But isn't that one we see throughout the Bible? Adam and Eve in the garden, they were punished, right? They were kicked out of the garden of Eden. 
Those living during the time of the flood, there was no escape from punishment, right? They died in the waters. All those who were not coming to God, those, all those who were not obedient, which in Noah's time was literally just, almost who were faithful, literally were just him and his family. Those during the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, who would not repent, they felt the fire come down from heaven, right? The Bible tells us that God rained fire and brimstone from heaven upon those who lived there in, lived there in, in Sodom and Gomorrah. We could go on and on and on. We move to the New Testament. What's going to happen? The Lord knows. The Lord has told us many times before. The wicked will do what? They will face God in the day of judgment. They will face Christ specifically in the day of judgment. He tells us to give no place to wrath. But vengeance is mine, says the Lord. The Lord's going to punish those who are indeed doing that which is against Him. God is not mocked. Galatians 6 and verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever man sows, that he will also reap. There is no escape from punishment. Proverbs chapter 7 and verse 23 tells us that the son pay no attention to the cost of sin. Proverbs 7 verse 23, Till an arrow struck his liver, as a bird hastens to the snare, he did not know it cost his life. There are a lot of people today who are involved in simple things, not realizing the price of their actions the consequences of their way of living on the day of judgment, payment will be due and will be wrath upon them because of their disobedience. So let us learn from Nineveh, and if we have sinned our life, let us repent before time is up, because time is not going to go on forever on this earth. There's going to come a day, come a time, come a night, whatever it may be, when the trumpet will sound, the Bible tells us, and the Lord will descend with His mighty angels, right? Referencing the Lord returning, referencing the judgment day, and all will stand before Christ. So let us be those who repent if we have sinned our lives. Let us be those who repent before time is up, before the trumpet sounds. Man must not rely on their own might, on our own might, but in the power of God's mercy when man repents, because that's what Nineveh would have found. They would have found God's mercy. You know, sometimes today, and I've heard this from all kinds of people. I've heard it from religious people. I've heard it from employers. I've heard it from employees. All kinds of things. I've heard phrases such as, well, I hope God understands and the judgment I had to do this or this or this. And God's grace will cover it. And sometimes they even say, God's grace will cover it, I hope. That's a scary way to go through life, isn't it? If we want to have the mercy that comes from God, we have to repent and make ourselves right in His sight. We have to be those who are following Him. So we have sin in our life or errors in which we need to change. We need to do so because if we want to find mercy from God, we have to first repent and make ourselves right in His sight. This evening, as you think about these things, and we can help you or encourage you in any way, you can come forward now. That's going to be Sam singing the song that's been selected.